0: This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org.
1: So I'll speak a bit and then uh, there'll be opportunity for for questions. So, but um, I thought I'd have a question for you first. So the first question is, um, raise your hand if you, yes, raise your hand if you know of somebody who is in recovery um, or somebody who is in the throes of their addiction or, yeah, raise your hands if you know of somebody. Okay. Okay. Um, raise your hands if you have ever had an unpleasant experience (laughs) and raise your hand if you have never ever turned away from an unpleasant experience oh no hands oh Okay. So the reason why I ask those three questions, the first one is is to um, just show how much um, addiction is part of society, really. And I think often we tend to feel that it's the person out there on the street, on the park bench, who's visibly really struggling. And many of us in this room will know that actually it happens behind closed doors and it happens across all cultures and it happens across all classes. It's just manifested differently. Uh, I ask the second question is because often at the root of addiction is suffering at the root of addiction when it initially begins is often something unpleasant that uh, we're not able to stay with an unpleasant experience or sometimes it may even be that we discover from that first drink it's like, oh, wow, I, I can really relax now. I found a way out of this unpleasantness, Okay. And so what happens is is we turn away, which is the next question that actually we turn away from it. And what I call addiction often is misguided compassion. It's self-medicating. Some people manage to get themselves along to the to doctors and get themselves on legal pharmaceuticals, some people manage to turn to something which is acceptable. But I call it misguided compassion because if we're feeling unpleasant, why wouldn't we want to turn away from it? You know, if we're feeling unpleasant, it's natural for us to try and make that feeling better. But it's misguided and it's misguided because as we know, it puts us into that vicious cycle. And every time we react to an unpleasant experience, we're creating a rebirth of that experience. So it's interesting when people say, oh, rebirth, and I'm not sure about rebirth, and I don't understand rebirth. And I say, well, you know, life is about rebirth. All the time we're we're giving rebirth to a particular thought. We're giving rebirth to a particular behavior. And every time we react... And we turn away from something. We're giving it a rebirth. We're giving it life. And so we have to learn to do something different. Which is kindness is one of those things. Is just learning to be kind to ourselves. You know, often we beat ourselves up so much. So um, I wanted to just talk a bit about the book. Why another book on recovery? It's interesting. We, uh, my co-author, uh, Paramabandhu, he's the psychiatrist. He's a psychiatrist and he's the one who had a good start in life. You know, he had a, had a good start in life and, you know, addictions haven't really been an issue for him. And I'm the one who had a completely different start in life, and addictions have been part of my life. And it's just amazing in terms of the Dharma that we're in a very similar place. So in a way, I say, you know, it, it doesn't matter what we start with. Yes, some people start with a leg up, have a better start, but actually if we turn to the Dharma, to the teachings, we can all transform our lives. And I'd say that uh, I cleaned up in the meditation rooms, okay? Um, That's where I had a reprieve. That's where I was able to begin to find abstinence and sobriety of mind. And for me, uh, I got to a point where I just... Actually, it was a reflection on the four reminders, and I was reflecting on the precious birth and just wondering, why really is my birth precious? On an intellectual level, of course I knew my birth was precious. As All of us here, I mean, it's amazing that we are here because, as we know, many eggs don't survive. The majority of them don't. So the fact that we actually make it into this world is, is quite precious. But that wasn't enough. I understood it on an intellectual level and I really wanted to understand this mind turning. Why is my birth precious? So I gave myself a reflection and I reflected on if my birth is precious, then why do I want to live so much? And every answer that I came up with, it was just, it was quite ego-based. It was about all the things that I needed to do or, you know, I couldn't let people down. It was just all ego-based. So I decided to flip it and think, well, if my birth is precious, why don't I want to die? And of course, you know, there's fear and ego kicks in and fixing the self. And I just thought... I still haven't got to the bottom of this, and so I just had to leave it. And a few months later, this uh, voice—it was just like what I have to offer—is my recovery. And it was like, oh, I don't want to. <laughs> I don't really want to know about that because it's not something that I've identified with. You know, the identities that I've had is black woman, lesbian feminist, uh, political activist, journalist. Those have been the identities that I've been strongly attached to. And uh, fortunately, through the teachings of the Dharma, I've been able to loosen those attachments to those identities. But addiction, that wasn't something that I identified with. I was an addict. But I, you know, so the thought of, oh, my God, my, what I have to offer is my recovery. It was like, oh, I don't know, coming out about my recovery. I've come out about many other things, but having to come out about my recovery. But when I allowed it to ruminate and just to sit with it and not to run away from it, I just thought, actually, in a way, I'm just stepping um, into my lineage, stepping into the footsteps of Shakyamuni, the Buddha, and I am a disciple of the Buddha. You know, um, the way I see it and the way Paramabandhu too, my co-author, sees it is that actually what the Buddha had to offer was his recovery to the world. He offered us a way out of suffering. And there are many, 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 many teachings. And in a way, it's for us to Choose which teaching resonates for us, because there are many, many teachings, and I know for me um, the one of the first teachings that I heard was the Four noble truths, and when I heard that there was suffering, it was almost like a relief. it was like, Oh my God, this is Normal. It, it connected me i knew what suffering was and those of us who uh who are addicts or who have been addicts or whatever will know what suffering is and i i knew that and it was it was just like gosh finally it's okay that yes that there is suffering and then the second truth then that there is a path that leads to more suffering I could see so clearly how I was on the path to suffering. I could see that in the way that I was living my life. I was a very successful journalist. I had written several books at that point, but I could see very clearly how I was on that path to suffering. The third truth confused me because it said there was an end to suffering. And I couldn't understand why that wasn't the fourth one. I couldn't understand why it wasn't, there was a path that would lead me away from suffering, third, and the fourth one was that there was an end of suffering. But I realized, actually, if it had been that way, I would have given up because I just wouldn't have believed that there was a path that was going to lead me away and I didn't have the time to go down that path. But the fact that that third one said that there was an end of suffering, it gave me hope. And those of us who are addicts, we need hope. If we're going to recover, we do need hope. And then, of course, there was that path to lead me away from suffering. And so the teachings have been very important to me. But I, I will say, and I, and I will out myself that you know I am in a 12-step program. I I went to 12-steps late in my recovery when I had abstinence and sobriety. I left England and I moved to Canada and I knew I was going to be at risk. I knew that I was really going to be at risk and my Sangha wasn't close by. I had to get on a plane to be at my Sangha and my partner somebody who had been in a fellowship for a very long while and I thought why not try it and actually it was great it it was great for me it's important to say that um so in a way sometimes people say well is the eight-step recovery an alternative to 12 steps and what uh Bandhu and I will say, and I'll speak for Param first. Paramabandhu works as a psychiatrist. He works for the National Health Service in England, has introduced lots of mindfulness practices into the National Health Service. But he was in a situation where he was having to work with people with addictions who had been doomed as they saw it because... The 12 steps hadn't worked for them. And so they were suicidal. It's like the 12 steps hasn't worked for them. What next? What else? And him as a Buddhist practitioner knew deep down that actually there was something in the teachings that he could offer. But of course, working in the National Health Service is a very fine line. You know, um... People in England, um, well, nurses have been arrested for praying with patients. So, you know, bringing in Buddhism, bringing in Christianity just isn't acceptable. But actually, mindfulness has been a way to begin to slip some of those teachings into the, the medical service. And so, in a way, that's how we came together. I mean, we came together because we're both in the same Buddhist tradition, but because of the work that we were doing. Um, So, is it an alternative? What we say is, is that the teachings can complement a 12-step program for those people who are wanting to have a deeper connection with meditation, with prayer in that 11th step. This can be their 11th step. And actually, I uh, lead an evening called Recovery Mondays back in Vancouver. And it's great calling it Recovery Mondays. And I'd say that 80% of the people who come are people in 12-step programs. And this is their expression of their 11th step and it's just it's beautiful just to see people um, get sobriety of mind and see people wanting to go deeper with the teachings Um, but I will also say that actually it can be an alternative we know that 12 steps hasn't worked for everybody 12 steps is very important it's helped many many families and has saved many people's lives but it hasn't worked for everybody and so this is something else that we're offering to the canon of recovery we are living in the times now where there are many things out there once upon a time it was just 12 steps or the psychiatrist but now we're seeing smart recovery, self-management and recovery training. We're seeing mindfulness-based practices for relapse prevention. And so, you know, the time is ripe. We, we also know of Kevin Griffin, who has been looking at how 12 steps and Buddhism meet. And we have Noah Levine, who's just recently brought out a book called Dharma Refuge, and so the time is ripe, and in a way, the Dharma has been working with many people in recovery. One of the interesting things in my Buddhist community is, oh God, if we start doing recovery stuff, you know, what are we going to do if if we start getting addicts walking through the door? And, you know, and you know, even Paramavandu, it's great for me not to field that question, and he would turn around and say. We've always had addicts walking through the door. Yeah. so Buddhism has been working a long time with addicts. Um, but another question which has come to us is why eight steps? You know, why did you call it steps? You know, trying to confuse the twelve steps, or is it the fast track way to recovery? <laughs> and. I apologise, it most definitely isn't the fast-track way to recovery. Um, we really reflected on what we wanted to call the book, and we knew that we wanted to be really crystal clear what the book was about. It nearly was mind- we nearly had mindfulness on it, because if we had mindfulness on it, it would sell, you know? But actually, we realize what we have been doing is putting the Buddhism back into mindfulness. You know, in a way, you know, as I I was talking earlier on, how mindfulness has become secularized, and it's almost mindfulness is becoming divorced from Buddhism. And what we're doing is putting the Buddhism back into mindfulness. But um, Steps has a very venerable tradition in Buddhism, some of you may be familiar with the text called the Dharmapada, which uh, the epistemology of the Dharmapada is steps of the Dharma, or more commonly known as verses of the Dharma. And when uh, the Buddha was uh, reflected through images, this we call a rupa is quite modern really you know uh, for many many years the the buddha was symbolized by perhaps a tree or uh, the the turning wheel but one of the most common ways that the buddha was symbolized was by two steps two footprints in the ground and often if you if you go to places like bodh gaya It's one of the things that you can buy. You can take away these footsteps. So in a way, we wanted to bring back the steps, you know, uh, walking in the footsteps of the Buddha. But also, we know that the Buddha stepped all over India to share the teachings. And so that's why we came to steps. And I should take some water at this point <clears throat> it's funny uh, if I wasn't on a microphone I would have used my stomach more which would have um, protected my throat so uh, into my stomach we inherited 8 because initially we were going to use the Noble Eightfold Path and we really uh, took pains to try and make it work and we just thought this isn't going to work and we threw it out. And in a way, it's great because Noah's book actually does really concentrate on the Noble Eightfold Path. So in a way, it was great that we did throw it out and we didn't need to be confined by that. But when we threw it out we um, didn't think about changing the number of the steps. So it's just by default that it became eight-step recovery. So the, um, the, the steps. Um, the first step, or well, the first three steps, definitely do um, parallel with the noble truth. So the first step is accepting that this human life will bring about suffering. Um, Whether we have addictions, in, in, in inverted commas, and we do say that this book is for everybody. And I know for me that when I let go of what I call my gross addictions, which was cocaine, and my core addiction, which was food, I was an extreme bulimic anorectic and if you're wondering how bulimic anorexia can be an addiction then buy the book and read the book Mm -hmm. it's a i the some people say and i don't want to have a hierarchy of addictions but some people say the worst two is food and sex and i i'm telling you for me it was an addiction i couldn't i couldn't walk past a table or a shop if there was food once upon a time. I didn't even know how I ended up in the shop once upon a time and buying the food and then purging my head down the toilet. And then there's the whole thing of being addicted to, to the uh, feeling of purging. So it's a really, uh, it's, it's, it's an addiction. But as I say, if you want to know more, you can, you can buy the book. But when I let go of what I call those gross addictions... It was then I just thought oh my god my biggest addiction is my thinking you know that you know people um, it's it's like a, we don't see the impact of thinking thinking it's the it's the cause of murder it's the cause of domestic violence it's the cause of sexual abuse and we, we know in, in North America, and I'm sure it's the same in, in Europe, that one of the top five causes um, for driving accidents is, is impaired driving. You know, it's, it's yeah. And so um, really, I, we really do need to uh, take this on seriously. I always say that if we could get arrested for our stinking thinking we'd all be in prison at some point you know you know just imagine I mean you know I don't want you to put your hands up but to ask yourself the question would you be happy for people to hear all your thoughts you know and you know if it's no then this book is for you okay (laughs) The the Buddha, um, Shakyamuni, taught us how to work with the the human mind. That's what he offered us. And I do want to say that um, you don't have to be a Buddhist to to benefit from this book. And we, we wrote it in that way. Yes, we wanted to be clear. What we're doing is we're offering the Buddhist teachings. But, you know, anybody can take these teachings in a way... What is a Buddhist anyway? You know, what is this this label? Then anybody can take these teachings and bring these teachings into one's life. The second step is seeing how we can create extra suffering in our lives. And you may remember when we was doing the meditation, I was asking you, you know, after each stage, do you feel pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? And every time we turn away from what we're feeling, and, and you know, we can turn away from feeling pleasant. Some people, you know, they, they find it incredibly difficult to allow themselves to have pleasurable thoughts and feelings, or, or they love the pleasure and they turn away from it because they want more, Okay or we turn away from it because it's unpleasant. But every time we turn away from it, we are creating extra suffering in our lives. And we know the, the, the teaching, there's the two-dark teaching that uh, Shaky gave um, when he was talking about suffering. And so that first start is, yes, um, if we fall and break a leg, that's suffering, that's real pain. So we're not saying, you know, there isn't suffering. That, that is suffering. But when we go into the mental proliferation, we are multiplying the suffering. It's like a kid running along the road, falling on the floor, cuts their knee, suffering. Suffering picks up the gravel and rubs the gravel in the knee. And often that's what we're doing. We're multiplying our suffering. You know, even even when somebody dies, you know, that's suffering. But we multiply. I, I had a very good friend who died. I mean all of I've had many good friends who've died, but this particular friend, because she was um the key person who kept in contact with me since I had moved. It was like, forget about her, it was all about me and and who's going to keep in contact with me and who... And I caught myself and it's like, forget about my friend who had died then, but it just came all about what I wasn't going to get, all about the stuff that I was going to lose and was just multiplying the suffering, really. And so it's really important for us to... Uh, become aware I'm just uh becoming aware of the time too so um, skating through the the steps the next step is seeing um, just uh seeing um, impermanence and just seeing um, that everything is impermanent. the actual step is embracing impermanence to show us that things can change and that's really important so you have these first three steps we haven't even spoken about abstinence or harm reduction people ask is it an abstinence program is it a harm reduction program and it's like well actually in a way it's working with the mind program and so it's in step four that we actually then say being willing to step onto the path of recovery. It's at that point. And we have to be willing to step onto the path of recovery. Sometimes we drag people along to a 12-step program or to some recovery program, you know, and they go because they know that, you know, if they go, it's going to please us. But will they go after? So, you know, the person has to to, uh, make that choice. And then the next step is... um, transforming our actions, livelihood, and speech. And so this is the working ground, beginning to do the work, beginning to change things in our lives. The next step is making every effort to stay on the path of recovery. As we know, sometimes we hear people say, I'm a chronic relapser. Um, Mark Twain said, it's easy to stop. I've stopped smoking a thousand times, and so this is where we really begin to to look at that, to look at what that takes to make every effort to stay on the path of recovery. And then we have a step uh, placing positive values at the centre of our lives. For me, this is key. This was key for my recovery. Those of us um, who have addictions that will be the thing that is at the center of our lives. If we have resentment and anger, that's going to be at the center of our lives. And whatever is at the center of our lives, that is what we are going to make our decisions around. We have to be aware what is at the center of our lives. And so in recovery, what we do is is begin to place positive values at the center of our lives. And in the book, we talk about if as Buddhists, And we give an example because we know that some people might not be Buddhists. If you're you're a Christian, you'll place God at the center of your lives. It's a positive value. As Buddhists, we talk about going for refuge. And what we place at the center of our lives is the Buddha, seeing things as they really are, waking up to the truth. It's the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, and the Sangha, the spiritual community. And we go for refuge and place those at the centre of our lives, and and it's just fascinating when I go back in time and think, God, what once was at the centre of my lives? You know, it was cocaine. You know, where was I? Where was I going to get that next packet from? Was food? You know, um, was yeah, uh, many other things. And my life has completely changed. You know, what I think about, what I choose to make my decisions about is based on these positive values. But as I say, that's for Buddhists. You know, um, there are many things that we can put at the center of our lives that uh, will transform, will help to transform our lives. And the eighth step is, is helping others to, you know, sharing the benefits that we've gained by helping others, which is really important. That doesn't mean that you have to go out and save the world or you have to go and start a recovery group because helping others is walking the talk, you know, it's modelling, it's that whole mentorship, it's just really living your recovery. That helps others when people see us live our recovery. Sometimes I, I get a bit embarrassed because I, I do I'm because I've had to. It's been a gift I think with the food that I have to be quite clean in in, in the way that I eat because sugar is one of my alcohols. I, I can't have sugar. And um, you know, I, I don't do coffee so my main drink is water and it's like, you know, people look at me sometimes and it's like and I feel like, oh, you know, I am really normal. But actually I know <laughs> people have, you know people do say that they really uh, it 's it's great to be able to see people living a life perhaps that they want to be able to live, so in a way, just by uh, living our values, we can help somebody else and part of my practice has been bringing my walk and talk together i 'll end with a with, with a joke i 'm not very good at telling jokes, so please forgive me. But um, I was one of these people who was just so good with the talk and this is what you need to do and this is, yeah, and go along to this, you know, you can sort yourself out here and perhaps you need to do therapy, blah, blah, blah. And I would have these uh, partners and uh, they would go off and clean up and they would start living these really healthy lives. And then one day I thought, hold on a minute, I'm still there. with all my addictions and all these people are going off, you know, recovering. And here I am still living the life I'm living. Something has to change. And at that point, it was really like, okay, how can I begin to uh, walk my talk and begin to bring my walk and talk closer together? So I'll end on that note. Thank you. So, um, any questions?
0: Mm-hmm. All good. Hi, Chris. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, I think maybe you have a pretty multi-perspective in Wales, but, um, I'm all in recovery in addition to being in, in therapy. and i like the idea of suffering and the second dart, I totally get that. I'm the second, third, fourth darter, you know, I'm going to throw as many darts at what I'm doing to it myself as possible, you know, I get out of myself, I get it out of myself, right? Um, but I find also sometimes uh, I have this other part of me that becomes almost addiction, addiction is a strong word, but um, this, this grasping or attachment to emotional pain. And I was talking to my therapist actually today and one of the things I just realized in speaking to her is when I'm spiritually fit and emotionally fit, and and, and I'm appreciating the abundance and everything going around, my life is actually quite good. I, I know that. And um, then I don't, I'm not attracted to that that pain of emotional suffering. But once I get in it and I start to experience that depressive state, I'm like, I wouldn't even want to use the tools to get out of this because I want to be here. So I don't know if you have anything to offer.
1: No, no, it's... <laughs> yes, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, um, when things are going well, you don't need to practice. It's when things aren't going well, it's the time that we really need to practice. So I can really hear that when you, you have a good life, and it's great to, to see that, that aspect that you have a good life, but when uh, you tip into perhaps negative mental states you begin to to grasp onto this emotional pain and what i say is it's the ego fleeing to something familiar you know it and it's safe and that's why you're fleeing to that place and in a a way it's um how can you just uh sit with and trust that Whatever is happening will cease on its own accord, because in a way you're trying to fix it. That fear of perhaps becoming too overwhelmed by it, and so we flee to somewhere familiar. And so, in a way, your practice is is um, is learning to sit with it. And that it's really hard because we hear, you know, leaning Pema Chodron. Lean into it, lean into the sharp edges, sit with it. And I'd say that actually sitting with it is coming to the body and the breath. It's interesting, uh, somebody I'm sponsoring at the moment, and she said, I hate being by the breath and in the present moment because there's so much pain. And I said to her, you're not in the present moment then. (laughs) And she got it because... If we're able to just come to the breath and the body experience changes because when we're fleeing to emotional pain, we're we're somewhere in the past or in the future, we've got stuck, we've got caught. So it's how we can come back to to the body. And coming back to the body is coming back to the sensations. People, what do we mean by coming back to the body? So if you're in a chair, it's it's feeling your sitting bones on the chair, connecting to the pressure, feeling the cloth of the clothing on your arm. You know, one of the reasons why we, you know, in, in, in Vipassana, we practice so much of uh, connecting to the sensations of the breath on, on the upper lip is learning to connect to the subtle sensations because we know the big ex- sensations and that's too late. The subtle sensations is, is the teacher when we can begin to connect with the subtlest sensations or often we're waiting for that big experience and then we miss the subtler, subtler experiences of just seeing things as they really are. But coming back to your question, it's a practice of being in your body. Being in your body, connecting to the breath in the abdomen, connecting to the breath on the upper lip, and as best you can. Being with the body and giving yourself kindness, you know? In that moment, what we need is kindness. You had a question?
2: Yeah, I'm a recovering alcoholic. And what I found is that for most of my life, I avoided all feeling. I had nothing. And uh, I, I know that I had some causes for that, but um, coming, practice seems to be almost one by one recovering your ability to have emotions and to feel. And then it becomes uh, integrated somehow. And it's very little work. But I, I find myself very happy, you know. It just—it just comes over me, and people look so good, and life looks so good. But the—the the big thing with me was, um, what what they call, um, uh, telling your stories over and over in your head, or telling stories that aren't even true. <laughs> what's going to happen? And what? Yes. Over and over and over again, and with this training. Um, I think things have gotten so much better, you know, it's like I was afraid to experience anything. And it's just amazing to me that, you know, that life is so easy and it's so good. I'm really happy you came tonight.
1: Thanks for speaking about the, the joy of recovery, because I do remember that point of, oh, my God, I can feel this, or, oh, my God, I feel oh my, You know, it's like meditating in the morning. Oh, my God, so I feel like this. I, I feel a bit vulnerable. okay, I need to put an extra jacket on to keep me warm or, you know, protected. But, yeah, it's the, I think sometimes uh, people feel like recovery, we have to white-knuckle it. And I always say, actually, once we're white-knuckling it, we've lost it. You know, we need to be asking for help, not white-knuckling it. You know, which is something which is uh, very difficult for many of us to do. But yeah, thank you. So I will sign books. There's a few. Um, If they do go, I think I did bring an extra. But um, thank you for having me.